1971, Paul Schrader wrote his essay, Notes on Film Noir, which originally appeared in Film Comet in 1972, and opens with a spot-on prediction. Hollywood's film noir has recently become the subject of a renewed interest amongst moviegoers and critics. The fascination film noir holds for today's young filmgoers and film students reflects recent trends in American cinema. American movies are again taking a look at the underside of the American character. As the current political mood hardens, filmgoers and filmmakers will find the film noir of the late 40s increasingly attractive. The 40s may be to the 70s, what the 30s were to the 60s. As a little context, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy were both assassinated in 1968, three years prior to this. A year later, the Manson murders arrived like a period to the summer of love. The Watergate break-in would be in 72, the same year Schrader published his essay. Opinion had already turned on Vietnam, and the U.S. would finish withdrawing by 73. The U.S. was gripped by seismic change and a souring of the public towards institutions. In short, perfect soil for a new generation of noir to rise. In that same essay, Schrader pointed to four key elements for noir to happen. Post-war malaise, post-war realism, an influx of German filmmakers, and the rise of hard-boiled fiction. This second round of noir, variously fitting into the titles of post-classic noir, novo noir, post-noir, retro-noir, or just neo-noir, came from a similar set of conditions. The rise of New Hollywood, driven by film lovers who'd grown up on the classics of the 40s and 50s while bringing new energy and ideas to the industry. The decline of the Hays Code and its replacement by the rating system, allowing for greater sex, violence, and moral ambiguity than ever before, and that growing loss of trust in civil society. Two movies stuck a bold flag in the ground announcing this new wave of noir with defining takes on the detective archetype. Both were auteur-driven projects, one revisiting a classic character of the original noir movement, the other creating a new anti-hero for a new generation. Together, 1973's The Long Goodbye and 1974's Chinatown fulfilled Schrader's prediction. The 70s would indeed be looking for a new mood of cynicism, pessimism, and darkness, end quote. Welcome to the end of the dream. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotel corridors. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Step aside like a nice fella and let us do our job. What's in it for me? Nobody got hurt. I'm saying I think they died quickly, though, so I don't think that they got hurt. Ladies, it's okay with me. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films, then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Tristan Johnson, joined by my friend... Fred Pilzer. And tonight we have one hell of a double feature. We're looking at two titans of the modern noir movement, one dubbed a self-mocking fairy tale, the other frequently listed as one of the greatest screenplays of all time. We also want to give a fair warning to listeners. We're going to spend the second half of the episode talking about Chinatown, a great movie made by an accused pedophile and rapist. If that's not your bag, we understand. But to start, we'll be discussing The Long Goodbye. Sydney 
Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the question. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. The Long Goodbye was released in 1973. Directed by Robert Altman, written by Lee Brackett, and starring Elliot Gold as a new Philip Marlowe for a new decade. The film follows Marlowe as he helps an old friend, Terry Lennox, drive down to Tijuana, but then the friend is accused of murder and reportedly kills himself. Meanwhile, Marlowe gets drawn into a case of a missing husband just down the street. And wouldn't you know it, but the two matters intersect. All right. Oh. We're back from our intermission. We're back for some... Good to be back. New Philip Marlowe. Uh, let's talk about our, our personal relationship and experience with the movie. Uh, and I guess we'll just go down the call sheet here, starting with Robert Altman. So what's your, what's your experience with Altman? I am a an absolutely massive Robert Altman fan. He's certainly when when I was first getting into film, uh, and I think it was because I'd already had seen before I started getting seriously into film. I already had seen and loved Gosford Park, and at being you know a murder mystery and all, I was already well on board, and and that in turn got me early on into other Altman films. Uh, so I've been in his corner for a long time. Uh, I would go so far as to put not one, but two of his movies in my top 25 or so of all time. That would be Nashville and, uh, and even higher still, I love McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And I was really hoping you were going to say Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know. I have actually somehow never, never checked out Popeye. Maybe it is a masterpiece. Maybe it's top five of all time for all I know. But, but McCabe <laughs> and Mrs. Miller is, is truly is, is one of those like rare, perfect films that, um, that I, uh, that I would gladly put up against anything else out there. Um, and, uh, long goodbye sandwiched right in between that and uh and nashville uh like two years or so on either side right in the early 70s yeah i'm been slowly easing myself into altman and it's one of those things there's a lot of uh because i didn't go to school for film there's a lot of classic auteurs that i um i only experienced in bits and pieces so with altman up until a few years ago i'd really only watched the Long Goodbye, and um, I'd watched Prairie Home Companion because I was a huge Prairie Home Companion fan. So when that came out, I think that was my first Altman. And, and his um, last. And his last. So I've been slowly parsing them out because there's only so many. and I mean, there's a lot, but, uh, you know, no need to, to rush it. So I've been slowly giving myself those gifts. And I've definitely been hitting the high end of the, you know, the ones that people talk about. But each time that I do finally watch an Altman, I'm like, this is pretty great. Uh, so yeah, I've watched uh, at this point also McCabe Mrs. Miller, which I also loved. Uh, what's the other Elliot Gold where he's a gambler? Uh, California also, Split. Oh yes, and he's in MASH too. He's in MASH too, but I haven't watched MASH yet. Uh, I'm a little, that one I've heard has not aged particularly well so i'll uh you know i'll watch yeah. it at some point that's but, that's definitely on of the ones i've seen that's on my lower end three women is great uh that's a, that's another good one yeah i mean the three women the player which we'll eventually watch is another one i'm looking forward to to getting to nashville shortcuts uh i mean i've got a long list of great great movies to watch but uh california split as with somebody who loves a good gambler movie the california split is great and also somebody who loves elliot gould um so yeah, no, but uh, the long goodbye. Like I said I, I'd watched this years ago when I was getting into noir cinema, and 
and when I was reading all the Raymond Chandler books and loved it then and, and love it now. Uh, making a return appearance, Lee Brackett. Yeah, back uh, Lee Brackett, who we um, we we know as the screenwriter, one of the screenwriters behind The Big Sleep. Uh, but she's got an eclectic resume, doesn't she? <laughs> yes, uh, as we covered in that episode, she's done space opera. She's done, I mean, pretty much anything and everything, and is consistently great. So you know, it's it's great running into her here again. Although, based on what I've read, the shooting of this was not particularly strictly by the script, which in turn, the script kind of takes its own liberties with the book. So I think everybody's playing a little, little loose and fast, which is appropriate for the, the tone of the movie. Yeah. I think, I think tied to that, it might be worth noting like Altman's signature move, <laughs> uh, which uh, when it comes to movies, and this is actually, this is a fairly muted example of it, but he, this is a director for those who aren't familiar with him that that favors large ensemble casts where conversations are overlapping each other and uh, and and so logically when when you're dealing with that some uh, script details are going to get washed over thrown out the window just kind of obscured by the the way that he the the audio landscape he likes to paint with his movies. This is a tangent, but I don't know what else I'm going to get to say because we're definitely not covering Spielberg. But have you ever noticed how early Spielberg is very indebted to Altman when it comes to its dialogue? I haven't. Um, I haven't really thought about that, but that's partly because I haven't watched a lot of like Raiders aside. I don't think I've watched early Spielberg films. I mean, we're talking like seventies early Spielberg. Um, but if you watch a little bit, a little bit in Jaws, it's kind of loose. But especially, I think. Close Encounters, there's a lot of that kind of overlapping dialogue going on. Yeah, I think before you were born, all film history gets kind of compressed, but also, I don't know, it, it feels siloed a little bit. So it's a good reminder of like, oh, right, you know, Spielberg was once a director, young director in his 20s and 30s who really liked what other directors were doing. It was like, I'm going to take a little bit of that and give a little give a little spin of my own. Well, and there's the the obvious one, and we, are, we will come back to this within this very season, but, uh, but Paul Thomas Anderson is, oh, the, yes. is, is the direct successor to Robert. Altman. I mean, literally works uh, for he, him. Uh, makes Magnolia. He, <laughs> yes. Uh, he was, um, he was the, the director, the backup director on call for Prairie Home Companion uh, in case Robert Altman died during production or, got um got hospitalized and so you know that he he was already like kind of anointed as the altman successor yeah there's definitely well, i mean i think we'll get into this a little bit more but there's definitely that through line from harper to the long goodbye to inherit vice in terms of absolutely the, that like weirdo socal energy really imbuing the the detective story um but yeah and uh finally elliot gould great Love him. No and this notes. is this is his role, right? Like this, Which, when when you cite a a, a great Elliot Gould character, uh, you you can't ignore his Marlowe, uh, mm-hmm. and and it's a testament to to what a great character. I was the thing that struck me most rewatching this was just how in a, a character that that Bogart has gotten to put his stamp on, Elliot Gould is. Um, is holding his own more than holding his own. He is. I, f- I feel he's just totally iconic in this role. Uh, well, also you texted me what I just realized I'm older than than Ellie Gould in this movie, and I was like, that's depressing. <laughs> Both of us. He does. He he acts like an old man. Oh, he does. Um, he, 
So that's that's the charm, right? Oh, 100%. So yeah, let's let's start there, right? So uh, both Brackett and Alban have talked about this this element of of Marlowe in this movie. And I'm just going to quote from Brackett here uh, from an interview she was doing. As far as the story was concerned, time had gone by. It was 20-odd years since the novel was written, and the private eye had become a cliché. It had become funny. You had to watch out what you were doing. If you had Humphrey Bogart at the same age that he was when he did The Big Sleep, he wouldn't do it the same way. Uh, and then to add to that, Altman has has said had said that he viewed Marlowe as a man adrift in time, trying to hold on to 50s virtues in a world that didn't give a damn for them. And so, I, I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of signal that you know there's the fact that he's always going around in his suit and his tie he's the only one who's ever smoking a cigarette and everybody else is is not there's there's a bunch of like little touches to kind of take the suit that. off he, he won't take the suit off he only takes the tie off to go in the water he's also driving a car from the 50s even though everybody else is driving a, a modern late 60s early 70s car so there's, there's just a lot of contextual details that that emphasize how out of time he is in this movie and I, I mean, it works great for me, um, and I'm sure for you too. It it does. Um, it's uh, no, it's so true. He's he's set apart. Well, right from the get go, we spend. In case you're wondering what kind of movie you're in for, the first eleven minutes of this movie are mostly just devoted to Marlo hanging out with his cat, going to the store to buy cat food and returning <laughs> and and you know what i was transfixed i mean i think this is the epitome of how the detective story is an excuse for the detective and the filmmaker to just go interact with a bunch of bizarre characters you know especially the chandler books like the mysteries aren't that important i mean this adaptation kind of does his own thing entirely with the mystery that gets set up. But in general, it's okay. You've got this case that's going to make you go around and talk to a bunch of people. And the point of the movie is you, you enjoy hanging out with the detective because they've got a great voice and you enjoy all the characters they interact with because they interact with these like big, interesting characters. And so it, this to me is, is one of the, absolute best examples of, of how that works and why it's so fun to, to watch. Yeah. And it's done. It, this is stuffed full of memorable characters, but not, in, it's not deploying it in the same way that the big sleep um, or, or other, other adaptations are. Um, it's not just cramming it in for the sake of plot. Uh, you've got, and one, I, I guess here's, here's one of the linchpins of, of what, Altman and Brackett are doing here. You have that delightful security guard doing his impressions of of uh, of famous actors, <laughs> and uh, and you know someone who's someone who's obsessed with the past, someone who is a, you know, a character of not any real consequence, but brightens the full proceedings. Like this guy's a joy every time he shows up on screen. And he um, and he's just in love with film history, and and he's a dork about it, and it's great. I mean, it's the it's right, like it's an Altman touch that every character and every side character is just imbued with a little bit of extra humanity that that lets them pop. Uh, there's that the kid who starts from the that works for the gangster that starts following Marlo around, who's just so completely in over his head and gets like turned around every time he has to talk to Marlo. 
there's the neighbors who are all like new age hippies that are doing yoga naked on their their the, balcony. Oh, and... the, the contrast with with Marlo and them is so um, so deliberate, so purposeful. But him shopping for cat food in his suit and and, and the the hippie neighbors. Right, and again, brownie mix so they can make weed brownies for themselves. And it's just every step of the way in this movie, they're they're taking that time to to really give the little extra detail, the little extra humanity that that just makes it all feel so lived in and warm. And uh, you know, something I didn't realize until I was doing a little research on this was that uh, that Hawks was originally offered this to direct, uh, which would have been a different movie. Wow, would that have been different? And and like a a I don't know um, when I don't know when Hawks died, uh, but the, this would be late era for him for sure. Oh yeah, uh, I, I I can't think of any films that he's made into the seventies. So uh, wow, that would have been a different different movie. Yeah, and apparently they offered it to Bogdanovich, and Bogdanovich turned it down because he's working something else. And he was the one who huh. said that they should do Altman. Wow. Oh. Oh, that's great. And I don't think I would have want. I, I don't think I would have wanted to see the Bogdanovich version. Like I just no, I I, I, it just doesn't I, have an appeal to me. I I he's he's a, a director with a ton of intellect, but I I don't know. I think um, you know when it comes to what works for me as a viewer, Alden's yeah. got it in a in a way he he doesn't quite. Right, and I'm sure part of it is trying to picture like Bogdanovich doing this version, which is so clearly sculpted to Altman's interests. Bogdanovich would have done his own thing and it would have had a completely different spin, but just based on, I don't know, based on his body of work, I'm just like, that's, that's not as interesting or exciting to me as, as Altman doing it. Yeah. Uh, um, so one, one moment I wanted to, to flag and just, it kind of carries on from these, these character moments, but the, um, the, there, there's a lot more, uh, internal turmoil here that is going on than we've seen. And a lot of, a lot of times we've seen, personal turmoil as a, as a tool to drive the plot, but legitimately the, the, um, the author and his, and his wife and their, and their uh, breakdown at the beach house and, and their argument, like it, there is, there's real danger there. He's a bull of a man. He's um, it, it, it is such a charged conversation and it felt to me so unique from things that we've seen in any noirs leading up to this point it landed in a way that that made me legitimately uh, uneasy. Uh, and uh, and I don't feel like I'd gotten, I've not gotten that feeling from any number of the previous noirs that we've been watching. It, just a, a sign of the, the changing times and, you know, what, um, what, what we can bring it, what films in the 70s now are bringing into the, the mix. Yeah, I think Altman really wants us to invest in these people and so i think they feel because of all those details and texture that he brings they feel a little bit more lived in and and real than a lot of the characters that we meet i mean and they're we've met great characters who are a lot of fun watching these detective movies but they are more serving purpose in terms of the larger narrative Whereas here it is that feeling of like, oh, these are some people who got caught up in some bad stuff. 
Yeah, and and what a good example. I mean, it gets kind of lost sometimes when you have these these characters that border on cartoonish in 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 noir. And you know, Maltese Falcon, perfect example of that. But but you know, set that's a it's a template that's set throughout most noir. But here they they are the characters are both larger than life, but they they are really grounded, and it it feels like a paradox. But yet here they are, and not every director and writer and actor can can pull that off but they they work right here yeah i mean it really is goes back to the altman of it all and just how how much this is crafted to fit him and what he's doing and it wasn't well received at the time the the critical consensus was that it was a misstep that gould was a bad fit for marlowe um that, that some reviews like he's a Shlemiel and Marlowe isn't supposed to be Shlemiel and uh, I mean and not to say that there's all uh, a lot of prominent critics that are still remembered today like Kale and Ebert and Siskel at the time actually gave good good notice and, and said positive things about the movie but the the overall consensus was both from audiences and from critics was was this you know that this they weren't ready for the way that this was being playful at, with the Marlowe of the past. I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'm not super familiar with how Altman is regarded throughout time. I feel like he he certainly is a director who, until late in his career, wasn't, uh, to me, doesn't seem like he was fully appreciated. But, but you know, he got, like, like Nashville is... Nashville is part of that the, the golden best picture lineup um, of nineteen seventy five. It's like the best ever. So he's clearly got got notices for his work. But um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of a lot of his appreciation comes from kind of retroactively assessing his body of work and what what he did. There's uh, I feel like I could uh, carry on praising this movie for for quite some time. There's just so much so much good about it. The um, the we can't not talk about the uh the those those stunning shots um reflecting in the the glass at the beach house where we get yes where we get marlo kicking around at the at the waves and as the argument is unfolding and then we get the reverse of that uh, uh just a little while later as um as, as the author goes out and and goes into the water to and to drown yeah, the the way that he uses his mise en scene to convey just a whole host of information is is impressive throughout. And yeah, I just like it keeps coming back this this time around especially. It keeps coming back to me for the author and his wife in terms of the the core of the story. And I don't know. I, I feel like you know the last time I'd watched it was fifteen years ago or whatever. And thinking back, what I remembered was not focused on that. It was mostly just focused on Elliot Gould and just how fun it was to be around him and and the ending, which we'll talk about. But uh, this time, that so much of it, I mean, it is the case that is driving the plot, but also, like you said, it, 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 you get kind of emotionally involved in that that couple, and it just is is this sort of tragedy unfolding in front of you. Yeah, um, that that's that's also I'm already I guess I already established that, but that's that's where I was drawn on this rewatch, and it's been at least ten years since I've seen this. Uh, so, 
uh, I, I, first time, you know, you're first time you're watching this, you're definitely caught up in the, in Marlowe's, uh, shtick because this is a different Marlowe. This is a different detective to this day. I can't think of another detective that quite moves about the city, moves about his cases like Elliot Gould does here. Uh, there's, well, there, he is still, uh, he's still $50 a day plus expenses. He, he still is. He's still, still holding to that. And I absolutely love it. I mean, it's, it's every time any detective does their, it's this per day plus expenses. I'm, it just puts a smile on my face. I'm like, okay, we're, we all know what we're doing here. All right. So, so what do you, uh, what, what do we make of, we've, we've been watching this gradually progress, uh, from, from the the thirties to um, to the seventies now, and to this point, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, up until we get to our next film, <laughs> uh, everyone has been set in present day. I think so. I'm trying to, and I was trying to think if there were any that we didn't talk about that would fit that bill because we have our, you know, as we as we mentioned before, we have our list of titles that we for one reason or another we decided not to do i mean i guess like alphaville happens in another time but that's also kind of why it's not we're not covering it because it kind of fits into sort of noir intersecting with more fantastical genres um yeah i mean i'm just looking through here uh yeah Tony room black lizard legends of men hickey and boggs yeah i mean these are all these of all these are all present day present day films and and by this point the the world we've arrived in um here in the early 70s is is barely recognizable from where we were hanging about in the in the 40s it's just we've undergone some mammoth change and and i think if you were to pull yourself out of our context which is watching all of these kind of in progression and you just drop yourself in and watch this and size it up against uh, against you know your memory of the Big Sleep or Maltese Falcon or what have you, um, then it feels very different from from that noir. Uh, I think um, I, if you were to watch a if you were to watch a western that is set in modern day in present day, it feels a little weird calling it a Western in the same way that calling Stagecoach or Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a Western, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, yet it is. It's, it's still got all of the elements there, but it's just jarring to, to right, Because we've been trained to think of those movies as happening in the past, but, they, I mean, they were happening in the past, but they're happening in the very recent past, right? And so there's, there's again, that compression effect that 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 moves through it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and we'll talk about this at the end of the episode, is that, you know, is this, is this neo-noir? Is this the start of neo-noir? What makes it neo-noir is, and also, is neo-noir also a moment, just like noir is often thought of as a moment? Did no, well, there's a lot to, like, dig into there in terms of even just how noir may or may not be a genre unto itself, right? That, like, that, that conversation of can something that is, made up of stylistic inflections be a, a genre specifically talking about the long goodbye the difference between the long goodbye and the big sleep or even the long goodbye and marlowe which was only three years earlier feels 
like a much bigger stylistic leap than say Marlowe is from the big sleep. Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, it's uh, suddenly this feels like a, a world of difference to me, but I think you've, I, I mean, I think you've got, you've gotten a tour helming the, the film and that, that is one big key element here. Um, you've got a changed cinematic landscape in the seventies for American film. Um, we'll, we'll keep digging into this, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a, a sizable gulf, uh, in, in what this is between what Marlowe was. It's, it's, it's felt. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we were doing this, the sixties episodes and it, it is, you know, those really were, those really, it, it drives home how much those were transitional periods, even with Harbor, which, which we both liked quite a bit that, it's still kind of very indebted to what came before it stylistically, whereas this really feels like it's taking the familiar gristle of story and reach and filtering it through a very modern lens and framework in a, in a very exciting way. And to me, that is why, spoiler alert, why I feel like this is really one of the starting points of, of neo-noir as a concept is because it is pushing noir forward in a very concrete fashion is sort of resetting resetting the stakes of, of what that is and, and where that is. You know, another big change I, I found for this, and, and I think also will be something we talk about a lot with both these movies, is its outlook and its ending. And I think that it is a... a it can be sort of a, a surprise nihilistic movie, or maybe not nihilistic, but it's you know it's such a funky because it's fun and it's upbeat and you know at the end Marlo walks away and he does a little dance but at the same time it is a very bleak story where he's not able to prevent the writer's suicide um he keeps trying to make a difference and isn't able to there's uh another recurring motif in the in the movie are are people watching but not taking action so like after the the suicide by ocean all the other people come by and are just drinking wine and talking to the cops and, and watching the aftermath, for instance. And then finally he reaches his breaking point and he kills one of his best friends for, because nobody else cares, but he still does. And his, you know, his worldview has been pushed to the limit such that he has to commit murder. Yeah. This is, this is a movie about uh, the world's most easygoing man reaching a horrifying breaking point. And um, and, and that end is is great. Uh, it's uh, it's it's inevitable but unexpected uh, at, at the same time. And unsurprisingly, it was something that that they had to they had to fight for. There's one of those things where people came on board and were like, "I'll do this movie as long as the ending does not change." And the studio went, "Yes, we're going to do this ending." Ha! But, oh, I'm so glad they kept that. Oh yeah, and, and up to the dance, right up to that dance. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's it wouldn't work half as well without because that's like I said that that is the point of it. it. The point of it is how do you it is reckons reckoning with how do you tell a detective story in the modern context? Like like Bracket was talking about in the conclusion that they come to in especially in that moment being released in seventy three is you the, the detective cannot survive in this moment, like what, what the world has become in the 20 to 30 years in between the publication of the book and the making of the movie, 
the the detective would would not be able to survive as is like he would he would like i said reach some kind of breaking point either internal or external there'd be destruction oh and um it's it's really impressive to me too um like so much massive credit goes to bracket for for being able to exist on either either end of that divide 100 imagine that's so hard um, yeah, coming back to, 30 years later and, and 25 years later and being able to... And being able to offer fresh insights in a in a different time, like that, um, what truly, I know I know we're about to jump into the, the movie that, that is lauded as being one of the, the all-time great screenplays, and I'm, and I'm not even here to disagree with that, but, but let's give Lee Brackett some massive credit for what she pulls off. No, it, it is... Uh, yeah, she's she's great. I have nothing else to add to that. <laughs> Didn't even just say anything. Um, yeah, so I think those are my big talking points about the movie itself. And like I said, there's a lot to still talk about once once we get on the other side of Chinatown and, and talk about both of them together and, and what they're saying in in this moment as as we enter the seventies and and noir gains new momentum and a new new wave of, of American Hollywood filmmaking. But is there anything else that you that you'd want to touch about uh, specifically um, to long goodbye? Not nothing nothing meaningful, but we we have managed to somehow overlook the um, the utterly bizarre scene where um, where where a bunch of gangsters all strip down. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and just as a uh, as to prove a strange point by. Uh, by the man in charge it's a it's a very weird scene but a delightful one and i I, like i just like those kind of flourishes getting to exist in a movie that that feels it can let its characters be weird and and it works well i think that also something that made me think of was um the conversations we've had in the past about the detective as a masculine figure, right? A masculine icon and where we were that the, the, you know, that that scene happens and there is some element of the guys, some of the guys being hesitant about doing it and the, the gangster having to kind of cajole them into, into following throughs that they're all on the, the same same footing there. Uh, and Marlo is, um, I, I, I'm not gonna, I, I would not go ever so far as to say that Elliot Gould is not a sex symbol because I think he, I, I, I think he's a handsome guy and he, um, and he clearly owns this role. He's got a lot of swagger, but he's not your conventional Hollywood sex symbol. And, uh, and, and, and so like looking at it through that lens of masculinity, I don't know. I kind of, I like that he is a, a kind of mischievous Marlowe. That he he's a bit of a shit stirrer, and he he just swaggers through a scene, and 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 you know when he has an opportunity to to throw a barb, cause a little bit of trouble, he gladly does. But uh, but he's it's just such a different cut of masculinity than we've been watching over and over and over again. Yeah. And I, I, again, it's just sort of that, like, we're in a new decade, and because, uh, yeah, the even Harper and, and uh, the 1969 Marlowe still felt 
pretty closely connected to those those earlier earlier right. detectives, but this is just a very different idea of masculinity. Yeah, and granted, like Bogart, not conventionally attractive, but he is conventionally cool, mm-hmm. and um, and and then then you have you know in contrast you've got your your uh, Paul Newman, uh, I guess is the 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 end all be all of the 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 sexy cool. Uh, detective or you know action star uh movie star um elliot gould is um is certainly no paul newman but he doesn't need to be it's a totally different laid back inviting energy that that just brings you along with that wry smile right up and but that wry smile is covering deep in all right you like to dive into chinatown Los Angeles, 1937. There are lots of guys like J.J. Gittes. They're easy to find, if you want to find them. Mr. Gittes, have we ever met? Well, no. Never? Never. Since you agree with me that we've never met before, you must also agree with me that I've never hired you to do anything, certainly not spy on my husband. All right, before we go any further, we have to talk about Polanski. So in 1977, for those who don't know or are not familiar, Polanski was charged with an array of felonies in relation to the sexual assault of 13-year-old Samantha Gailey. He ultimately pled guilty to one charge of unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor and would have been released with time served after being held for, I think, about a year or so. Um, But the judge, fearing accusations of going soft in Hollywood elite, changed his mind after the deal had been reached and was prepared to sentence Polanski to 50 years. Instead, Polanski fled the country and has lived in exile in France ever since. The book The Big Goodbye and the Manson season of You Must Remember This Podcast both cover this in much greater detail. And while this is not the focus of today's episode, we do think it's important to acknowledge Polanski's history, which, as we'll see, also went into the shaping of Chinatown. I think it's also just sort of an important conversation, too, about art versus artist which has been going on online for you know 10 years now as we we reckon with problematic faves uh so yeah tristan what's your take on art versus artist oh boy this is certainly a, a dynamic take um and how i would have viewed this back in the the mid 2000s in college has has shifted dramatically it's developing deeper empathy and understanding as a society and and really digging into these um, to these problematic artists and having to confront people that you, you know, you, know, you, you propped up on a pedestal at one point. Gosh, Chinatown's a great movie. And Polanski has other great movies. Repulsion is, is, uh, is one of my very favorites. And I might even like it more than Chinatown. But, but, you know, Rosemary's Baby, uh, another, another one that would often get cited. But he, he's, uh, perhaps not always, but he, he, at his best, is a great director. And yet, He's an absolutely terrible human being. I have a little bit, um, I have a little bit easier time dealing with this when it comes to movies or to a TV series. Joss Whedon being uh, Buffy is one of my favorite shows ever, and obviously, uh, Joss Whedon is a reprehensible human being as well. Uh, but. Movies and TV are such collaborative mediums, and I think that Chinatown is is a really, really stellar example of that. That it's 
it's not it it's really unfair to the rest of the talent that has gone in to build this kind of film up to just outright dismiss a movie because the director happens to be rotten. Um, and, you know, I get if someone's still alive and they're still in a position to be making money off of something, you may draw a line there and I can't fault you for doing that. Uh, but, um, but there are many other people involved in the production of a movie or a TV show. It is much harder for me to push myself to have the same, um, the same appreciation for a Harry Potter book uh, or for Kanye West record or some something like that, where I, where I I struggle a bit more when it's more directly profiting a single entity. Uh, but but when it comes to movies and TV, I I do have to really remind myself that these are these are works of art made by many 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 people. Yeah, that is a good reminder and, and context overall for for this art as a collaborative form. And I also agree, like like we said at the start of this, you know, you know, if somebody else is is not comfortable with it, that's totally fair and understandable, and and we wouldn't fault you for that. Yeah, you know, I feel like okay, me watching, yeah, I, yeah, it is that weird? Like, especially with residuals, you know, in theory, by watching Chinatown on HBO Max, HBO Max now has us registered as saying like. I, part of the reason I pay for HBO Max is so I can access great movies like this so that they continue to license those movies, which in turn means that Polanski still gets some residuals, but so does Robert Town and Jack Nicholson and, and Chuck Hughes. Oh, I guess in Chuck Hughes probably gets from John Huston, like some trickle-down estate residuals. I'm not really sure how long residuals last after the person has passed, but anyway, uh, Faye Dunaway. Uh, so... Like you said, there's there's there are so many other people involved on a both on a financial level where you are supporting other artists and also from an authorship point of view where you know but at the same time as we'll talk about this movie, you can't look away from the Polanski's personal life impacting this story, right? And even if that's just what drew him to it and what he was responding to and, and processing internally that that is still a part of it and you know our art art is on a certain level tough to separate from the artist i i i'm also not like a hardcore death of the author even outside of like problematic faves I, I, that's not quite my my stick i don't know it's all muddy personal waters i don't know it's just weird little things too right where i'm like I feel a lot more comfortable watching an old Woody Allen film than a new Woody Allen film, right? Like, I feel like if I watch a new Woody Allen film, that's a signal to the studios keep giving that man the ability to make more movies. Whereas if I watch Manhattan, it's like, okay, Woody Allen gets a little bit of money, but so does a bunch of other Manhattan's people. Manhattan's totally the most problematic. Well, the, okay, that's a bad example. Thematic level. But you know, what, you know what I mean? Like, historically, <laughs> yes. or Hannah and her sisters, or whatever, you know, like, at least then it feels like, okay, I'm watching an older movie, which is not as much of a signal to the studio of, like, that man should keep making movies. Whereas if I watched Rainy Day in New York, whatever the last one was, that all those actors pulled out. He's, Actually, he's he's still, another one since he is then. still going, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the other one about the film festival. So yes. it's, um, there, I there, there are no easy answers. It's it's so much about deciding what, what you yourself are comfortable with and, and yeah. what you're, you know, there is no ethical consumption in, in late capitalism. So you have to draw your line somewhere. I mean, I mean, same thing for Polanski. I have not watched his 
that French Lieutenant film that was, as oh. many of his movies are uh, in the last 30 years, about somebody being wrongfully persecuted. I wonder where he got that from. Uh-huh. Uh, I I think I watched up most Polanski movies up through God of Carnage, but but haven't haven't seen and and some of them i like ghostwriter i some of them are 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 good uh but uh but still it's it's hard i don't it's know it's hard I, I your time once he's dead you know not yeah. not to say whether or not i'm wishing him dead just that i will feel less morally compromised if i watch that move if i watch even ghostwriter or the knife in the water you know i haven't watched that and i'm like and again like my own weird personal litmus test i'm like well that's long enough ago that nobody's he'll get a cent or two for me and no studio's gonna be like, this is an excuse to give him uh, a new a new project. But I'll feel even easier about it if and when he passes away. Oh, well, that was a fun conversation. Yes. Now let's talk about uh, a fun now, movie. Now that we're moving beyond that, um uh kind of town. <laughs> so directed by Polanski, uh written by Robert Town for Jack Nicholson, one of his good friends, because they came up in Hollywood together. Uh, and Jack Nicholson obviously stars at Gettys, the private eye specializing in divorce cases. He's hired for what seems like a run-of-the-mill cheating case, only to be drawn into a convoluted matter involving California land disputes, water conspiracies, pedophilia, and incest. Fun stuff. Uh, it also stars Faye Dunaway and John Huston. I, I, I may have mentioned this at, at some point on the, the, the podcast already, but Faye Dunaway and Bonnie and Clyde was my first childhood crush. So, uh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, I don't think you've mentioned that before because this is the first that I've heard it and I've known you for 10 years, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was one of those, it was one of those classic movies that I, I rented early on and, uh, and I think it's because I saw Faye Dunaway on the box and I was like, I like her. And, uh, and so, um, so I'm, I'm certainly a, a, a Faye Dunaway fan and, uh, and and she has a handful of great roles, but she has, to my mind, three particularly great roles, and those are Bonnie and Clyde, and Chinatown, and Network. And uh, and you know, I think you could pick any one of those three as her as her best in show, but uh, but Chinatown is certainly a memorable one. Yeah, not that she. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like. I think there's some light parallels in her treatment here with um, uh, Duvall in The Shining. Oh, yeah. I could... Although, also apparently, Faye Dunaway just in general has a, a reputation for, who knows? I mean, I don't know. I'm, I wasn't there on set. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, no. Uh yeah, Faye Dunaway is great in this. Uh, just just like with our last movie here, we've got another titan of the original noir moment. John yes. Huston returning to to play the picture of decrepit California wealth and power, and he does so wonderfully. I I didn't think about it till it's been a it's been definitely a few years since I've seen Chinatown, um, and and you know I I. Of course, John Huston is memorable in this. The guy's got maybe ten minutes of screen time. Yeah, um, and and I really, truly think that in those ten minutes, he carves out one of the great cinematic villains. He is, he is well, it's just a Hannibal Lecter. Oh, you know, just, just so 
so domineering looms over the proceedings. You can't forget his presence, and he is a force to be reckoned with. That voice, the, like it's almost Richard Nixon esque. The way that he's just like deep in his throat and has a little bit of like a waddle to it from from age. Uh, no, it's it's like I said, domineering. And then of course Jack Nicholson, uh, our first Jack Nicholson sighting, but it won't be our last. And like I said, this was he and Town were were good friends coming up in in L.A. together. And Nicholson in general, especially at this time, was a guy who looked out for his friends. And so, um, this uh, Hal Ashby directed uh, Last Detail. Last Detail, and that was another one where he was like, "This is my my buddy." I love so, that movie. That's a oh, great, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. Uh, so yeah, it was you know Jack. As he took off, he was like, if if you were my buddy coming up, then I'm looking after you and you're looking after me and we're going to make stuff happen together. And so, um, so yeah, Robert Town wrote Giddy specifically for Nicholson. Like the, um, I recently read the uh, great history of the making of this movie, the, the Big Goodbye, which is, I highly recommend. Um, and the, it goes into a lot about it, but there's just like great details. Like for example, Giddy's being sort of a, a clothes horse came from Nicholson because he was and is a, a man who likes to dress well, and so he was the one who suggested to town that that Giddy's do this. So it's it's all kind of like Jack is this character. You know what I mean? He, and 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 Jack Nicholson for anyone that's that's watching um, that's that's. Uh, a little bit younger i suppose like i feel like he's he's retreated from the the public spotlight compared to what we you saw of him but what was his last film something's got to give was it the was that it maybe i don't know it's been i mean it's probably been a good a good 10 years since he's been in anything maybe longer um and 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 yet uh you know all the way up through the late 2000s he he still is a a pretty formidable presence in in movies but there is nothing like his run in the 70s he's just got so many quality from easy rider in the late 60s on on through the 70s um so many great memorable roles uh and and you know he uh, he's he's got he's got a reputation for a reason like he is he is a great actor Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the it's more about the context too, you know. So there's uh, something that only recently really came to light with the the big goodbye, the history of this movie is that Robert Town had a silent co-writing partner, Edward Taylor, um, who is in all likelihood as equally responsible for this screenplay. On top of which, also Polanski did a lot of hands-on shaping of it, including the ending. And so, you know, Town gets gets a lot of credit, not to say that he didn't do a ton of work on this, too, and, and has had his hand in a lot of very important movies, especially from this era. But um, but it's, it's just sort of interesting how, as time has gone by, the authorship of, of the movie has sort of been spread around a little bit more. Mm. Um, I wonder how, I mean, it's a, it's a top-tier screenplay regardless, but it it doesn't hurt that the last five minutes of it are some of the most memorable uh, that, that I can think of in a movie. And when you stick a landing like that with, with that, that visceral of a, 
a set piece to end it with with everything with um with uh with uh with with gunshots and screaming and uh and a great one liner and uh like everything all packed into one dense little little burst um it it is it's easy to see where the reputation comes from and that ending was the the thing that gave them the most trouble throughout like that was one of the last things that they figured out like as they were shooting they were still trying to figure out the ending wow. and i mean even on the day again reading the book you know like on the day was when as they were shooting because polanski has set up has set like some stylistic rules which we'll, we'll talk about a little bit broadly but he set some stylistic rules for himself and one of them was that there would there wouldn't be any crane shots and then that day like as they were shooting he's like no you know what we should end with the crane and um and pulling back and it's totally the right choice and also just sort of the the you know much more hectic handheld action at the end there too is, is like i said it's so impactful and so forcefully bleak of an ending um and such a uh a, a, a departure to be to be planted firmly in in chinatown in those last moments when this is mostly a this is a, a stiflingly arid movie mm-hmm. um, with with bursts of of water with uh, with with juxtaposition that that's done for big impact, but for the most part you feel the heat baking on these characters throughout this movie and um, and then to to end in in such a dim uh, on, a, on a dark night in a in a a, a location that is clearly marked as being uh set apart from everything else we've uh, we've gotten and also inevitable because they've done so much work setting up chinatown as as that that place that we, you know we're going to see and again it's like i don't, I don't think that they knew they were going to go back to chinatown up until late drafts it wow. it, it really kind of came together and there was it was a, a long, long process to get there, but uh, fortunately they they did, and it's so interesting because, yeah. So again, in addition to Polanski uh, and his his accusations, and I, I mean I think he did plead guilty in court, so it is it's not just accusations, but in addition to that, or he wasn't. I can't remember. I don't know legal distinctions, so it may or may not be accusations or actual fact. I don't know. But that aside. You know, we're also coming into, as we said at, at the keynote, we're coming out of the Manson murders, right? And so um, Polanski had just had, as he saw it, the love of his life killed while he was away working on, on a film in London. And it, you know, not only, did, not only did it just sort of shake up Hollywood, but Polanski himself, he left L.A., he went back to England, he did the... Um, Macbeth, which is one of his Macbeth is like one of the most violent Macbeths out there. And of course he, he has consistently been like, my art, my art is not my life, but it's, it, it's hard not to draw a line from the brutal murder of his, his wife and friends to the increase and in, of violence and, and bleakness in his movies, which were already Dark movies, don't get me wrong. But. I, I think it's very hard to look at that at Polanski's um, entire uh, <laughs> entire filmography and not and not find those parallels. They're just so readily apparent. And so you know, he comes back and he's joins in on this this movie that is so much about um, 
again, this, this paranoia, this feeling that this growing feeling and realization that people are out to get you. And I, and I think that is a theme that is already present with, you know, Rosemary's baby and, and earlier films and will only further and further intensify as his career and his life plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit the the plot and how it also kind of relates to detective movies, past and future. As because I think this is it is such a huge reshaping of noir and the noir detective, right? So, like you were saying, this is our first real noir that's set in the past, but is set in the past of the slightly before the classic noir era, more the classic hard-boiled fiction era that noir draws from, you know, so the, the novels of Dashiell Hammett are, would be happening concurrent with, with this, this movie. We're, we're pre-war, um, pre-World War II, we're late thirties just to ground our listeners. Um, so yeah, we haven't, we haven't opened the, the cinematic door of noir yet. Right. But it, like I said, the, the, the literary tradition is still strong. That's, that's pulling from, and it's inspired by, it's based on true, like the, the corruption being described is is being drawn from true events of of how the LA water system came to be, and that was a big thing that that town brought into this, one of the things he was obsessed with and wanted to make the story about. And it's it's been one of the interesting things about revisiting all these movies together is it underlies how much the idea of the detective being drawn into a massive corruption story, and especially a land-based corruption story has become a defining like noir detective attribute, but it's really here that that begins. It's not from the classic period that you get the detective engaging with this kind of stuff. Absolutely. There's, you you know, you know, what other, the the obvious connection that I'm going to draw here um, from the seventies um, there, there is big ambition in Chinatown. Um, it is uh, on a level that we we haven't seen. It's it, the scope of the story it's trying to tell is just writ large in every possible way. And I, I, I think you have to look at The Godfather for, um, for, for setting that tone too, for being a expansive period piece that's done that's done to the nines. That's done. Um, this is not the costume dramas of of the 50s and 60s this is a new a new way of approaching the period piece right well it's paramount it's evans you know this is that's absolutely like the ethos of the studio at the time is is playing into it as well and uh, you know and, and like i said since then it, it has come up again and again most recently the perry mason tv reboot got into all uh, a similar la land corruption story um, the novel uh, Motherless Brooklyn that got adapted recently by Edward Norton also deals with the New York side of things and urban renewal. I mean, even just more, more largely, the not just a detective, but a noir in general. No Sudden Move is about, uh, to a certain degree, the urban renewal effort and, you know, uh, how that's, that's just, uh, as one character puts it, the N-word removal is what it really stands for. Um and so I, I think it's so fascinating to me that like this is a single inflection point that that firmly weds city corruption and especially city corruption over land to 
the noir genre. And from here, it just becomes sort of a default, like, oh, yeah, of course, this is a noir story, so there's going to be some corruption involving land deals. Yeah. Um, every... Uh, uh, so, such a such an interesting point to arrive at where, you know, you do take it for granted that those kind of things are baked into it, but this is, this is the formula. This, this is the recipe for, for that. And, and it learns, it learns that, that storytelling, not from classic noir, but from, uh, from, I'm, uh, again, it's not, it's not like it's, it's not like it's taking the God, what the Godfather is doing and applying it there, but it's similar things that you're seeing across some of the big, pictures of the seventies. Um, and I am not well versed enough in like, novels of, of that era to really be able to speak to it, but you know, storytelling in general is always evolving and the, the stories that we're pulling are, are changing. These are not, um, the, it's no longer just, uh, paperback novels that are, are being, are, are being turned into, uh, can be a, a grand sweeping noir story, and then you know you get eventually Pynchon and 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 Inherent Vice and uh, and things like you've got different ways to tell those same kind of hard boiled stories than than what we've been used. And actually, to. Inherent Vice is another one that draws on the tradition of land corruption. It's just more tied into the corporate side of things. But like one of the things that the Golden Fang is doing is like buying up LA land and using it for nefarious purposes. So and Pynchon's been been. Um, dabbling in that since crying of lot 49. Sure. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, which isn't quite, isn't classic noir era, but it's closer to it than as close to it as this is to that. Very true. Uh, and I think also not just storytelling, but also going back to our, our keynote, like that this is speaking and we'll get into this with both movies at the end here, but that this is speaking to the paranoia present throughout society that we are in the midst of a breakdown of civil norms and civil trust in America. And so of course this is being folded into storytelling at all levels obliquely or directly. And so part of it here is there's a wide sweeping corruption that's present in the government and in large private, uh, private companies and, and wealthy individuals. And at the end of the day, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's bleak. It is so damn bleak. At least, at least Elliot Gould gets to do a, a little whistle, a little jaunty tune. And I mean, at least Lennox and, is dead, right? Like there's catharsis yeah. for the audience. And um, here, there's not even that. We, you know, she, Faye Dunaway dies, and Houston gets the girl, and he can't stop any of it. Yeah, it's um. It's as bleak as any as any movie is going to be until Lars von Trier shows up. Yeah, and something else that I I've, I don't know I feel like I've really been noticing a lot in the series, but the um, the Polanski is the man with a knife is very giallo esque to me. In that um, Argento would always film himself as the killer's hands killing women. <laughs> And here, Polanski is the one who gets to enact uh, most of the violence that happens on screen, right? Like the most striking moment of violence of, of getting his no nose cut. And um, and one that's felt for like an hour in the film afterward because oh, yeah. he doesn't shake that bandage. So again, going back to the like, it's hard not to draw that parallel of him being able to enact violence, being able to be in control, 
you know, all of that sort of filtering into this decision of, and I sitting aside, like feelings about him as a human being. I'm not a big Polanski as actor fan, not a fan of the apartment, right? That's his, the one the where tenet. he's the, the, tenet. the tenet is absolutely his worst movie. Yeah. And I think part of it is like, he's, uh, I just do not like him on screen as just as an actor. No. Um, I, I, the only, like, I'll give I'll give the tenant the only credit I will give the tenant is that that the end is is so over the top preposterous that I mm-hmm. had to like uh like do it I did a double take to make sure what I was watching was actually happening but sure but it's it's not a good movie no yeah but so the but to the point that here I don't I don't mind him I don't mind him because it's a very small dose into a very specific effect and it it serves the effect but it is an interesting choice in his part to be like, I'm going to be an actor, but I'm going to be this actor. Like, I'm going to play this role. Ah, uh, Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, oh, man. Some it's so people interesting just can't like, resist it. Tarantino, like, came to L.A. to be an actor and, and, like, write and direct, but, like, that was a big goal of his, and that kind of fell by the wayside, and probably the right choice. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> but I, we've been talking a lot about what makes it kind of modern, but I think one interesting thing about what connects it back to me is the uh the opening is the mystery construction right so there's the opening gambit of a woman pretending to be somebody else who we see a lot in chandler of a woman pretending to be somebody else especially in this era when it was a lot harder to check the identity of someone like somebody could just walk up and say that's who they were and you kind of bought it especially if they had a business card with them as as we see a few times in this movie um, you know, we saw it in Lady in the Lake. We saw it in Murder My Sweet, where where female characters are have either are engaging in subterfuge and pretending to be somebody else for a momentary gain, or have like left behind a a past that they do not want to remember. And and both of those play out here between both the the fake um, Mrs. Mulray and then Faye Dunaway actually trying to leave behind her past. Um. Also, what did you? How did you feel about the the boy and the horse? That first Mr. Mulroy oh, talks to, and then yeah, it was, it's a very striking dreamlike moment that to me it, registered as as almost Lynchian, which is kind of a, a it does a cheap feel it it does feel speech, but, um uh, it does feel off compared because this is not that something like that would feel at home in the Long Goodbye, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it, it feels a little bit more striking situated here in Chinatown, uh, because it, because Chinatown's not the, it's not the same kind of, uh, it's not the same kind of check-in with a, with a, a colorful cast of characters mm-hmm. movie. It's, uh, it's not concerned with that. No, uh, it, it does, it, it, to be honest, it, it doesn't, um, it gets kind of swallowed up by the the scope of the story as a whole. So I don't think like a moment like that registers with me quite like it would if it, if it appeared in, in something either Lynchian or, or, or in Altman, uh, because it, it feels, even though I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's like an off note or anything, but it's, it's not quite, um, in continuity with everything else that's happening. Right. I mean, I didn't, did not stick with me, from the last time I watched this, it's not, even, it's not mentioned in the book. Like it's a very small passing moment, but because of how much it stood out this time, I was like, "This is a really interesting kind of like almost break from reality from everything else and the way it's shot and and, and everything." But I, I just got kind of curious about that. 
since we talked about a moment ago would have been that this is, I think, our only U.S. detective story to date that's not based on a book or an adaptation. Oh, huh. No, our detective, Private, Private Detective 62 is an original piece of, uh, original piece of filmmaking, but in the noir era, you know, we, Bogart, all the other Chandler adaptations, uh, all the other, my camera adaptations, international, I'm setting aside, and then yeah. we come back, Harper is based off of a book also, and then it's another Marlowe adaptation. Actually, no, I'm sorry, the Black Exploitation films are original. No, Shaft's based off of a book. Trouble Man might have been an original. This might be our second second original. And and we're certainly gonna get toward more and more original as we as we move on. Uh, and uh that's a that's a really good call out, but I think it it's partly why this feels so titanic. Um and yeah, it's it's because it's it's because it's got a reputation already baked in, but uh, I uh, and I would put personally, I think Long Goodbye and Chinatown are both uh, are, are both like side by side in terms of quality. They I love them both dearly, but but in reputation, Chinatown just towers above everything else. And I am hard pressed to pick out another movie quite like it. From its era or any other, um, it, it, it there aren't a lot of movies that are that, that are cut from exactly that cloth. So yeah, I mean, it is, maybe it's an anomaly. Uh, going back to the keynote and how there are all these factors coming into play with the rise of this new era of noir, whatever you call it, I think also it is these factors that very specifically plus the individual contributors that give you Chinatown. And that I think you're right. That is sort of, I mean, to the degree that any piece of art is singular, this one is especially, but no, I think you're, you're, you're right that the, you know, it, it being an original piece is also what gives it such a vibrancy as a film is because the film is the intended medium rather than an adapted story. And as successful, as much as I love many of the other noirs that we've talked about this season that are adaptations this is, you know, crafted from the ground up to be a movie. It's crafted from the ground up to be a movie at the height of New Hollywood post Hays Code. And so there's just a level of freedom in terms of what can be shown on screen, how it can be shown on screen, combined with a sense of adventurousness baked into the, the very blueprint of the story that I, I think is part of what makes it such a, a titan across the genre, across film history, however you want to look at it. And and not not to spoil too much of where we're going, but to pull the obvious, I think the most obvious example, when you think of when you think of something in this genre that is that that is that stands completely on its own, that it that has that same kind of stature, the big Lebowski's the one that, that jumps out to me from what we've got coming ahead. Yeah, but it's so interesting because I think it, it is it is singular. A hundred percent. And not in the same, not in the same way. Right. That's whatsoever. the interesting thing. Like it um, is, yeah. I don't know, it's interesting it, to get there and talk about it. But it's got much, much like Chinatown, it's yeah. doing a very particular thing and firing on all cylinders. Uh, all right. Is there anything else you want to talk about Chinatown or should we? No, let's, let's kind of merge the, the two. Merge two. I think we're already over an hour. So we've got yeah. plenty, plenty left to get to here. Indeed. 
Uh, all right. So how do these speak to this moment in U.S. history? I'll start there, right? So as we said at the top, it's a moment of, of seismic change in the country. And I think for me, the, the, the thing that really unites both of these is the inability of either hero to affect positive change. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Um, there, it, there's, there's real, there's real futility and it takes, um, it takes an act of, of murder, uh, of, a, of a close friend on the part of, of Marlowe and for, for Jake Giddies, it, it, nothing he can do will make a difference. The futility of it all. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and they are both bleak. As we talked about, the long goodbye coats the medicine with some sugar and and the Marlowe's own, like, coping mechanism of it's all okay with me kind of covers the degree to which his sense of right and wrong is, is being pushed to the breaking point and his, his sense of morals and ethics. But then, yeah, Giddy's is just like, he keeps thinking that he's got a handle on things. And it, 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 the world proves him wrong. He comes into it thinking that he is already jaded, right? Like, Giddy's at the start is trying to give off that vibe. And we open with him doing that divorce case and just showing off some photos of this guy's wife uh, sleeping with a, uh, another man. And he's just playing it cool. And like the first half hour, 45 minutes, so is him all just constantly being like, I'm in control. I, I know how this works. And then and, the back end is just you, him being broken down. And you see, like, early on, you see moments where he gets to try and be that, that warrior. He's in the barber shop, and he he um, is is calling out the, uh, what what's, his, what's the insurance um, insurance guy? Is that who who it is that he he calls a bimbo? Oh, yeah. And, and dresses down. Like, he's got fire to him. He wants to, he has, he has something to say. But it doesn't. It doesn't amount to anything. It doesn't get him anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't. Know, I, I feel like we're just in agreement here that that it does speak to that that larger moment in history, and also especially why Chinatown was was well received was just as with the earlier era of classic noir, it is speaking to an audience that is feeling aggrieved and disconnected from society. And so they want to see stories that, that are looking at that. Yeah. So here's what we've already, we've already communicated for each of these, but, but haven't really spelled out what, what to me is so unique about this era um, and about these two films in particular is that we've arrived at a point where where uh, where the long goodbye can take the detective stories that we have seen and it can make them smaller. It can make them more internal. Um, and then on in total contrast to it, we can get Chinatown, which puts it on the biggest canvas possible with with something as uh, as monumental as the the struggle for for water and and basic, corruption sweeping across all of the inland empire and it makes it as big as possible um and so we're we're getting the stories that we've heard already but we're we're hearing it in in two ways that are that are amplified in totally different directions and i i love that so much about both of these movies 
Yeah, it is. They, they, it is so fascinating how they, they simultaneously are kind of feel like they're in conversation with each other, even as they head off uh, in sort of opposite, opposite directions, so many different ways in terms of period, in terms of style, in terms of, uh, as you said, scope, it all, they're, they're each making very different decisions about how to approach the genre and the archetype. And yet they feel collectively like the breaking of the dam, right? That like, they, they, they're, is... they have something new to say. They have something right. new to do. And we didn't get that with any of our, our 60s entries. I mean, we get um, in the, when we jumped across, uh, uh, across uh, the Atlantic and Pacific, um, and we we got some new perspectives from Godard and from Suzuki, uh, and and it was it was very refreshing, and 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 these are these are that, but even these are these are that, but but filtered through uh, such a a machine. I mean, they're 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 still ultimately Hollywood productions, right? And and so they feel like they've been refined to the point that they that you know even if there is contention in getting these movies made and out to the public, um, they they've been really thought through every every decision of it. And nothing against Jean Luc Godard, uh, I love his fly by night approach. But but uh, but Made in USA is is filled with big ideas, but it's also it's also a, a quick movie that is shot. Uh, uh, presumably with uh, an infinitely smaller circle than these are put on with. Well, I think as you pointed out earlier, this is really our first instance of U.S. noir, neo-noir, whatever, the U.S. detective story intersecting with auteurism as an understood phenomenon, right? Like, this is post-auteur theory filmmaking where whether or not these specific directors are like consciously being like, I'm an auteur, so I'm going to do shit. There is still a larger understanding of the director as having signature and style and authorship of movie that is filtered into the larger film conversation. And so I think that is part of what makes new Hollywood era the new Hollywood era. And also what we're seeing with these movies is like, it's not just everything we talked about with the long goodbye. Like so much of it is coming back to Altman and what he is doing and his ticks and his style that, that make it feel fresh. And then same thing for Polanski with his thematic obsessions and his personal history um, that, that are, are part of what is bringing that new energy to what's being made. Absolutely. Oh, uh, it's it, it's an exciting time to be in. Uh, it's it's an exciting. It's it feels like bring, getting to bring these two together. I don't know that I don't know that you could have talked about these two movies stacked up against a different a different movie. Well, right? It would overwhelm like, the other movie. It, it would it's, completely. in the same way that you couldn't. You'd have to do. We had to do the Big Sleep and and Maltese Falcon together because they're both so. And they both come right at the start, right? So let's let's just get into it, right? Is this neo noir? Is neo noir a thing? Uh, you know, so uh, I've seen some people say body heat is the start of neo noir. I've seen it applied to movies starting in the '60s. It's pretty much anything after 1958, after Touch of Evil, is inherently neo noir. 
Uh, Schrader has said that neo-noir is a mirage because noir is a moment in time and not a genre. Um, you know, there's a lot of different arguments a lot of different ways. So what do you believe? Do you believe in neo-noir? And if, oh my if you goodness. Do, do you think- I'm increasingly less convinced I believe in neo-noir, but maybe uh, I, I think that uh, I, I do think that genres are, I, I agree with that assessment. Genres are moments in time, right? Um, in, you know, in a broad scope. He's arguing a distinction between those two, two, two ideas. Schrader calls back to the original French definition, which is that it was a series and not a genre. And so his, so he's tying it more towards like French new wave as a movement rather than the Western as genre in that style, like a moment of style is not, cannot be genre is his argument. So what happens though, when a moment of style, which is what the classic noir era is, inspires so much what do you make of that and that's right. and that's where we get to neo-noir right it is uh and 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 i don't think it's as strong with other genres right because musicals how do how do you say how do you draw no the line quite with right it's uh it, it doesn't operate the same way but but you have um you have something like giallo that doesn't exist today like it did um that still can have an effect felt and that's a more that's a moment in time it's largely right. happening within one country and even within a western i think you could you could point to spaghetti western and you could you could dig in on that but but to me i don't even see the i i have a harder time drawing uh classic Hollywood Western pulling it away from things that were being done for, for decades after, uh, you know, they tapered off of course, but, but much like the musical, it's harder to make that separation. Whereas, whereas uh, a Italian Western where you've got good, the bad and the ugly and, and once upon a time in the West and the, the great silence and things like that, that feel of a piece with each other, very, very much apart from the rest of Hollywood Westerns. Well, even something that we've touched on just uh, an episode ago, well, the black exploitation movement, like that, and, and exploitation films in general, right? Like that, they are. I was just reading um, Sleazoid Express, which which deals with the history of uh, Times Square and the Deuce and, and exploitation films that were being shown there, and, and you know, it really is like a moment in time from what, the '60s to the '80s, and and is expressed in a very specific. You know, it takes in a bunch of different genres of war movies and prison movies and um and like stag films and uh noir and, and all of this and then mushes it together and, and makes something very different and and but also you know i mean like you look at grindhouse or you look at um uh what was the uh michael j white's uh exploitation homage uh Black Dynamite? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and like, yes, it is. Those are homage. Like, those are, but they're not, they're not the thing, right? Like. It's sometimes hard to see those 
movements when you're in them too. Oh, true, hundred percent. Um, I mean, it, like noir was not defined until ten years right. later, right? You, you or at the end of the moment, moment, you don't realize what what you're looking at at the at the time, and um, and and yet then you can look back and you can and you can say, oh yes, there is a there there is an era here, and uh, and and then that in turn can spawn uh, that it can, can become spawn a imitators, right? Tarantino is his own is his own thing and spawns a, a series of imitators. I don't know that that's quite the same as a genre because that's a specific director doing it, but it's right. a, I mean, one director about, that's had such impact. Right. I think we talked before about like the genre in general, especially noir, which is kind of codifying a lot of style similarities and how that is to a certain degree, especially classic noir, is sort of working counter to tourism because of the fact that like you're talking about okay these are films that are engaged in a lot of similar ideas about how to make a movie um but going back to the point and i'm i'm also becoming more suspicious not suspicious but doubtful of neo-noir as a thing because so i've been reading uh one of the books i've been reading is uh detours and lost highways uh, which is by Foster Hirsch, who's written a couple different things about noir in general, but this is a book specifically about uh, quote-unquote neo-noir. And one of the points that he makes in his book is, you know, if neo-noir, A, so like if you take the rise of neo-noir, it's like a proof positive that noir is a genre because it's carried on and that there are definable traits that we're still seeing carried forward that call back to the classic era that sort of demonstrates that it has lived beyond its moment, like you were saying. But if you, if you set it into, you know, the classic and the post-classic noir or however you want to define it, then the post-classic, the neo-noir era has lasted twice as long as the, as the classic era. So, you know, what was the point of that distinction? And also you know, neo-noir as sort of like modernist noir, like as soon as you define a art movement as modern, and then especially as you get into like postmodern, which also kind of falls into the neo-noir heading, you have no road left to go as a, as a like a definitive trait because you, now you're just sort of being post-post and post-post-post-post. And I mean, same thing in any art, art movement, as opposed to sort of being like, it's noir and it's just noir that's continued to evolve over time. What we have to think about, I guess, is uh, is of course at you know for a while now, but uh, at no point in time than now have we had more access to more genres, to more art of all manner, film and otherwise, than we ever have before, and that's been on a steady upward trajectory for some time now. So, so your everyone, everyone making art, whether they're writing a book. Or, or making a movie or, um, or, or a record or what have you, they are a product of so many disparate things that even if you say, even if your stated intention is to make a, uh, a film in the noir style, you are inevitably pulling from so many places, so many things, um, subconsciously or otherwise, uh, that, that it's, um, it's hard to pin influences anymore. Things are, it's, you know, it's infinite regression. It's turtles all the way down. So, yeah, I think I am, I am being swayed to the point of view of like, 
if there is such a thing as neo noir, then it was a a moment in the same way that classical noir was a moment within the larger history of the genre of noir. But that noir itself has continued throughout, and that also, you know, I think while definitely stylistically is a big element of what unifies the classic noir era. Again, looking at how there are still movies and films being produced today that are, you know, either called noir, neo-noir, what have you, that are relying on elements from that that aren't just style-based, but are story-based and character-based and archetype-based. That's sort of also uh, what we're doing right now, right, is sort of saying, like, there is a specific character as protagonist that fits the definition of noir that is true in 1942 and is still true in 1973 and will be true through 2018, which I think is the last um, movie that we're, we're looking at in this series, and that that they are all noir and that and that and and also there's a distinction between like under the silver lake or the nice guys and their private detectives versus the private detective of knives out right that that is also not noir and so the distinction that we looked at between the gentleman detective of of uh william powell and the tough gumshoe of um of bogart still holds true today. And so like, I think that that is the evidence needed of noir as genre that has moved past the moment of classic noir. And, and let's, and let's be clear too, while we're, uh, while, while we're throwing it around, even if we're looking into classic noir and we've, we looked at a, a handful focused on the private detective, but there in, in talking about what the auteur is bringing to noir, I don't, we didn't really touch on some of the, the more, um, director-driven uh, entries into the genre. I think um, I think Murder in My Suite might be the the one that has the most distinctive stamp of the classic era that we we looked at. But you know, you get into things like The Third Man or Lady from Shanghai, um, and and there's the Orson Welles ones. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's there's some clear there there's some clear uh, evidence of the of directorial. Uh, stamp in those movies so it's not like it's something that's devoid it's not like all noir are are under the same kind of banner there are noir films that come in with a real stylistic point of view and there are ones that are workmanlike and uh i mean even in this series well maybe not to that extreme we we do i mean murder murder my sweet and um uh and monster falcon and big sleep are have a lot more personality than say the Brasher to balloon or um, high window, like any of the, any of those other Chandler adaptations we're looking at, or even looking ahead to Marlowe and Harper. Like they are, they feel different because they're in a different time period. They have color. Like there, there are these things that have been updated, but they still don't feel as we were discussing, like they have a signature in the same way that the long goodbye and Chinatown have a signature to them and a point of view. 
Yeah, and I think I think part of that's just like we haven't watched a Fritz Lang noir. We haven't we have we haven't watched Orson Welles at it. There there are there are directors that do um, uh, Nicholas Ray or Otto mm-hmm. Preminger. There's directors that do really leave their stamp on what they're they're doing, and we just haven't covered them yet. We'll, yeah, we'll and I think maybe I also par- poorly paraphrased an argument that that I had come across, which is isn't I guess I shouldn't say that like. Noir as genre is antithetical to auteurism, but rather that the effort to define a moment or genre by style is working across purposes towards auteurism. Uh, And not that they're mutually exclusive, but that it is sort of a, okay, how can we say that all these movies have unifying stylistic choices when we're also saying that these directors are making singular stylistic choices but there's also like overlap right no 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 thing is one thing or the other there's no directors like this movie is unlike any other movie ever made and nobody else can ever replicate you know what i mean like and as we talked about even with these movies these directors are in conversation with the movies that came before with other directors with other directors and are are not they're not locked in stone they are bringing in new influences constantly and updating their own processes to reflect that and I, I think it's worth noting too that when we're talking about these these kind of uh, moment in time genres, we're not normally talking about films that get thrown around under like the greatest of all time banner. Um, they, they, these tend to be um, these tend to have more lurid pleasures to them. They that they are they're things like like Jalo or like uh, like Kung Fu or Wuxia films. Uh, they're, well, they're no, things I that... feel like a lot of the new wave, like the different new waves, I would say, are are moments, but those tend to produce more critically acclaimed films, like French New Wave, Czech New Wave, Japanese New Wave, you know. I, those are, and those tend to be grouped largely by, by country, though, mm. um, where, whereas... Whereas a lot of the films that you're talking about in within those given movements are very dissimilar to each other, um, and they're they're more driven by a nationality, and in some cases like French New Wave by by a, 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 a you know a way of critical thinking, but there's still there's such a gulf in in how Godard approaches to how Truffaut just to take the most the the two biggest examples. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, I would push back just a little bit in that, again, going uh, looking at specifically classic noir, part of that definition is American-made films between 41 and 58, right? Like, there yeah. is, but you're also right, there is more unifying that than there is in French New Wave, Czech New Wave, what have you, right? Like, that there is, uh, again, that there is some content definition to the genre, that there is crime involved and wrongdoing involved right like that is a a plot concern in the same way that like westerns and musicals have plot concerns that are outside of style um and and you know also shows our limitations as as viewers even someone that's seen a fair amount of french films from the 60s most of them in my head fall into the french new wave category uh, and yet there are other movies in France that don't that at the time that don't fall into that. One of which Purple Noon is a, a great noir. We'll be talking uh, about it at some point. Yes. There, so there are other there are other but things that are classic outside. noir. It's not a classic noir. <laughs> so I think we'll just I think we're just going to say. Well, OK, let me say this. 
I, it seems like we're both landing on either new noir isn't a thing, or if it is a thing, it is a thing that also lasted a specific length of time, just like classic noir, and that it is all part of the broader noir bucket, right? But but rather than because I, I think a lot of critical discourse gets trapped in a like there's noir and there's new noir, but new noir is not noir. It's a new separate thing that builds on it. And I feel like we're kind of landing on there's classic noir, which is a period of time within noir. There's new noir, which is a period of time within noir. And there are other periods of time within noir, but Let's noir is noir. ongoing. Right. Yeah. And then noir, noir persists. It continues. Exactly. Um, and, yeah. and, and perhaps we will see other, other pockets of it as we move forward. And I certainly think, and, uh, and this is not going to so much be the subject of this season, but there's, um, there's clearly an erotic element that gets pulled into nineties no era noir. And, uh, and, and so, you know, that there are, there are moments within, within that genre that will, that have appeared and will continue to appear as we move forward. Agreed. One quick thing that we just haven't talked about yet that I did want to flag and kind of I thought was interesting was the escalation in violence against women that these two movies present. Yeah. Both both films have multiple instances of I, I got to tell you women. I forgot about this completely, but that broken bottle in Long Goodbye hit me like the the pot of coffee hitting Gloria Graham in the big heat. It was it was that kind of level of visceral and I'd forgotten that was in there, and and it was it was really jarring. Agreed. I think it's from a plot point of view, it is necessary as a reminder of the stakes because the detective. It, let's look at like the slasher, right? Which is such an easy go to because everybody knows what a slasher is. You know, in the slasher, you've got a large cast of people that we killed off, and so as you reach the final girl we understand the stakes because we watch all these other people die and we're like, she could die too. But in the detective in the noir, he is operating solely on his own, dealing with a, usually dealing with a crime that has been committed in the past. And he's sort of dealing with the aftermath of it. And he's dealing with dangerous criminal elements, but also you can't kill the detective because the movie would, you know, I mean, you could, yes. and you end up in a psychosis, but generally the convention is he is your main character you're not going to kill him because you need him to make it through to the end of the movie. So you need to introduce these bursts of violence that help remind you that there is danger to this narrative, whether that's it works. The gangster hitting his, his girlfriend and his mistress in the face with a Coke bottle and like scarring her, or it's Polanski cutting um, Jack Nicholson's nose. And again, sort of a, a real sudden escalation of violence that's sort of say it, telling you, the threat is real, but also sort of reminding you these aren't your father's or your grandfather's detective movies. The violence here is, is much more felt. Although the the the, co the hot coffee is a the, good the, pull the big the key is era. the anomaly there. Like that yeah. that's certainly to me one of the most memorable movie moments of the classic era, just because it feels it feels so jarring. It's such a wake up call, and 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 part of the reason it's uh, I would put it at the tip top of my my noir list. It it does. It does things. Um, it does things you just don't see coming, and and it it sticks with you. Uh, but same same effect here. 
Yeah, no, so in the classic area, people get shot or they, something bad happens to them off screen or, and there's no blood and, and all that. But here it is just, you know, so in addition to the Coke bottle of the face, um, you know, the, the writer is feeding his wife. That's how he introduced to the wife is that she is covering up the bruises to her face from, from this abusive relationship she's in. And then in, um, Chinatown, you know, you've got Giddy's just slapping Faye Dunaway to get her to like yeah. break through, which was apparently like not a great day of filming for Faye Dunaway. I uh, that. Yeah. And there's, um, uh, what's the other, there's another, ins- oh, the, um, that opening case of the divorce case that Giddy's is working where he's taking the photos and he comes back later to the same guy and gets a ride from him. We come back and we see that he's been beating his wife because he found out that she was having this affair. He's like, well, it's all resolved now. We're, we're good again because I gave her a black eye. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh, uh, no. And that's, uh, it, it is, um, it's something that, that feels, um, for, for Polanski's universe, it feels, it feels just part of the bleakness of, of it all and it, it's In the misogyny, thought, right i mean like the, yeah, right. the, it's, the original sin of that movie is pedophilia incest of and sexual assault of a father to his daughter and from there rolls many other instances of, of uh in chinatown it's part models. of the tableau um right. where whereas where whereas in the there are more punctuation marks in in long goodbye for me they're they like the both of the 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 bottle moment and then the the writer and his wife those moments are are just moments of of real human darkness mm-hmm. and um and they're and they're smaller than the than the larger picture that's being painted in Chinatown but that doesn't make them any less dark yeah uh and then one last thing just to i think it is interesting how both set diverging courses for noir going forward, right? Like projecting ahead to the many things that we've seen. I think the, um, as we talked about with Falling Goodbye, it sort of sets the precedent of the modern LA noir or South South California noir, where you're engaging with funny characters. There's a sense of humor about it that's mixing with the darkness. Uh, You know, Big Lebowski, 100%. Inherent Vice, 100%. Under the Silver Lake, 100%. Like, those are all yeah. operating in the same vein of, like, let's let's cut the darkness with some humor uh, and all just of, makes it all feel weirder. All of those mov- movies you mention, there there is a lens which they have to pass through from the classic era, and that lens is the long goodbye. They, every one of them, it, you, you feel what long goodbye has done to get to those points. And I think on the flip side is... As you mentioned, Chinatown sets the precedent of the retro noir, right? Of taking your film and setting it in the era of the classic noir to do a classic noir story, which LA we will also see a lot of. Going it's forward. the it, it, confidential. It's the two Jakes, which will the sequel to Chinatown, which we will be talking about later on. It's um, Devil in a Blue Dress. Yes, it's Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, no, we'll we'll continue to see. I mean, even Inherent Vice. Is sort of doing both, where it's taking the the humor and more modern trappings of the um, of the long goodbye, but then doing it as a retro noir being made in the twenty twenty or twenty 
2017 when did they come out 2015 but being set in the 70s right so it's a retro noir to the is being retro to the new noir era it's not being retro to the classic noir era yeah <laughs> oh um and you have paul thomas anderson doing pension which is already a <laughs> yeah and also it's the nice good. guys the nice guys also is a southern california weirdo extravaganza that is also a retro neo-noir that is being set back in the era of chinatown and the uh, the long goodbye coming out yeah all of this uh, a reminder that 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 southern california is is such a unifying element to to so much of, of class. it can exist elsewhere and has done very does has done Which so we'll very see in our next episode but <laughs> indeed uh, but but wow, Southern California has had such a monumental effect on how we view noir and how we viewed it through the ages. I, I think I, I floated this in, I think, one of the Marlowe episodes, but I really do think that the sprawl of L.A. topographically reflects the labyrinth of the detective novel especially. The way that the the detective is sort of let loose in the maze and has to find his way out is just reflected in the way that L.A., you, you, you know, you're moving from place to place. The places are spread apart. And so it is that it, it, it lends itself to that episodic structure of, of the narrative. Yeah. And um, yeah, and just psychologically, it's, it's also like you're in a desert. Yes. Yeah, so. you feel you feel the the topography, you feel the heat. Um, it's you you feel the maze that you're trapped inside. Right, and also the you know the, the classic. It it is the heights of glamour married up against the, the grimiest underworld, and that is where so much of noir lives. Is that that friction between those two spaces? And it keeps it gets to keep evolving um in in exciting new ways because how many how many different takes have we already seen on it and they're only going to keep going and and we haven't even mentioned something like like Mulholland Drive and mm -hmm. how that that holds there's just so many different ways to uh to look through so many different lenses to look through the same uh, inland empire and uh and, and I want you to keep naming lunch films so you as so you go through this paragraph well, <laughs> you're on through your oh argument. God. Oh no, 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 no. We're stopping here. <laughs> no, it's probably a good idea to stop. I think we've been doing this for at least an hour and a half now and we, we still need to wrap up. So easily. <laughs> more um, than more than that. Yeah, it's it's been a good conversation though. All right. So uh, in honor of Kiss Me Deathly, what's something you've recently watched that's so good it deserves to be glowing in the suitcase? Our usual section, what's in the box? So Tristan, hit me up. What's in your what's in the box? All right. Uh I've seen a decent amount i liked um i like neptune frost quite a bit that was a, I'm excited a to watch good that. uh just kind of a, a jarred me from what i'm used to to seeing and like the after afrofuturist uh kind of uh experimental film really liked it uh but uh but the one i've got to call out is um at, which you can watch on netflix is rrr um it is a blast um this is uh it's not bollywood uh it's um it, it's indian but it's uh tegaloo um and it is an action film that is set um 
through the uh, series of the grandest possible set pieces, uh, detailing an epic friendship between two revolutionaries. Uh, it is so thrilling and unexpected and bonkers. And I, I mean, yes, there's subtitles. I don't think that you could you could just sit and watch the action unfold and be delighted in every given scene here. I know you've gotten a chance to to see it already, Fred. It, it Hollywood could take a number of lessons from from how this stages its action. Also, music, uh, best suspender oh, yeah. dance sequence around. That dance sequence is such a such a peak. I mean, that's one of my biggest. I, I enjoyed the film quite a bit. My biggest problem with it was that. The first half is so played is so much better for me than the second half did. And I think part of that too is the second half leans way more into the political propaganda myth making national myth making element, whereas the first half is is much more grounded in like really fun characters becoming best friends, even though you know they're they don't know the truth about each other, which is just a classic storytelling trope for a reason. Uh, yeah, I just if, if if it had been the first half, had been the entirety of the movie, I'd have been like best movie of the year. Um, my, my favorite Letterboxd review for it was "We Fought a Zoo," <laughs> <laughs> I did see which, that, yes. which, which does happen. Which does happen. Um, I mean, it's a spectacle. It is the biggest best blast you can have. Um, what about you? Yeah. I let's see. I want to shout out sneakers, which I watched with my wife recently. I got to introduce her to it. It's one of my favorites. It's I, I put it. I would put it up there with Ocean's Eleven, the Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven, in terms of popcorn heist movies that are just about delivering fun. And it does such a good job of setting these these this this murderous row of actors as underdogs who also are very good at what they do. Uh, it's, you know, it's Robert Redford, it's Sidney Poitier, it's Dan Aykroyd, it's River Phoenix, it's, um, um, oh my god, who else, what's the last guy I'm blanking on? Um, I haven't seen it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess that it was 100% not on my radar till I saw your review of it. Uh, David Strathern, that's the last person I'm thinking of. Uh, Those are all great people. They're all great, they're all doing great work here, there's a bunch of other character actors who I won't name that pop up for like one or two scenes that are, you go, Oh my God, it's that guy. I mean, that's literally what Grace ah. was doing the entire time we were watching. It was just like, Oh, it's him. I'm like, yeah. Uh, the flip side is there's like one female character in the entire movie, Mary, Mc, Mary McDowell, who's, who is fun, but like, she's literally the, you know, Smurfette of the group where you're just like, need, we needed a role or, you know, uh, a romantic interest for Robert Redford. Also, she is like the 20 years younger romantic interest for Robert Redford. You know, there's a lot of like, of classic mid-90s shenanigans they're like oh we some of us turned our turned a blind eye to a lot of stuff here um but in terms of just like if you can go past some of the understandably hang-ups that you might have regarding regarding some of the storytelling choices it is just a fun fun heist movie that i that i adore and um uh, Phil Robinson, who directs it, like, uh, watching this time, I was like, this is just really sturdy directing. He does some, like, Spielberg wonders where he's just moving the camera around and shifting the blocking so that it's it's being dynamic but still being purposeful. It, it's totally worth the watch. Um, it, it, it's underrated, uh, but but there is a real skill to juggling an ensemble and just letting them do their thing. And Soderbergh obviously gets that and, and, and does it in spades. And it's part of why 
uh, why one of my favorite movies ever is Clue, which is not mm. a, a stunningly directed movie by any means, but it is a movie that understands the importance of letting uh, a cast of great actors bounce off each other and do their thing and how, how you can still get great alchemy out of something like that. Totally. Uh, but the, the other movie I wanted to shout out is X, which I finally got to watch, the new ah, yes. horror movie. Uh, oh. Have you seen it yet? I, um, I'm a big fan. I think I actually called it out on one of the segments already. Oh, great. Okay, so then, yeah. So, uh, like you, I loved it. I especially love the first half. That first half is just a lot of fun, very playful. Uh, and then it, sh- it shifts over to a really good slasher movie in the second half. Um, but that first half, I was like, if this, if the first half had been, just like with RR, if, if the first half had been the entire movie, I would have been my favorite movie of the year. I, I, curr- I currently have everything everywhere all at once. RRR and X is my top three of the year. So they're yeah, got everything as everywhere of, all at as once. Of halfway in. Turning red, X, and maybe one one other here. Turning, turning red, I've gotten fourth. So I'm I'm not far off there. This is all I don't know. I, I I'm not as good as you about like staying up to date on ranking. Uh, oh. Keeping my rankings up to date. So, um, but it, they're all they're all in the mix there. Oh, also, I, I I know I liked both The Northman and Fire Island more than you, so I I, I put those in my top five. Ah, yes, they are. They are. They they would be a little bit further further down for me, but um, uh, but still, years off to a good start. Plenty good more start. to see. Um, but yeah, I will not be I will not be upset if um if X or RRR or Turning Red or or Everything Everywhere all at once all uh all fall among my my favorites of the year could be worse than that for sure for sure all right thanks as always for joining us in this excavation of the darkest critics of genres especially for a very long and very bleak episode you can find us online at celluloiddirt.com and on letterboxd under the handle celluloid dirt join us next week as we see what happens when the detective leaves la with two sweaty entries from South Mason-Dixon line, Night Moves and The Drowning Pool, both from 1975. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a Strange Phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>